Well, hello and welcome to Rockets Pockets. At the sound of the Valkyries there, you know we're starting another episode. And today uh, we're bringing in Dave Pepin to Rockets Pockets. Welcome, Dave. Thanks, Steve. Uh, thanks so much for inviting me into your home. Well, thanks for coming, man. Um, I should first mention that this episode might uh, talk about mental health uh, issues or suicide. So uh, if you want to avoid that, uh, don't listen to the uh, the episode. Uh, it'll be spoke about frankly and respectfully, but uh, if you have any issues with that, uh, maybe skip this episode. Okay, so uh, welcome, Dave. Um, we're actually winging it here, people. We haven't talked about what the hell we're going to do. So, Dave, start winging it by telling us a little bit about yourself. Sure. Uh, maybe is, move the microphone a little closer to your face. Yeah, there you go. So uh, that's definitely winging it. Um, but, uh, yeah, Dave Pippine, 42 years old now. Uh Retired from the CAF in 2017. CAF being Canadian Armed Forces, yeah. Yeah, and uh, so 14 years uh, with them, uh, three years with the Artillery uh, Forward Observer, and then 11 years with the Canadian Special Operations Regiment, where predominantly uh, I ended up as a JTAC and JTAC instructor. Uh, okay, so you're throwing out a lot of acronyms there, Dave. Yeah. Let's back that up. So uh, so first of all, you started off in the military as an artillery guy? Yeah, I did. So maybe just before that, like both my folks were military, uh, born Quebec City, Francophone, moved across Canada. So was your dad a Van Du? Uh, no, he's not. He's actually in the Navy. In the uh, Navy? Yeah. So he did 38 <laughs> years in the Navy and my mom was Army, but she did 30 years of Army. And uh, when we were on the West Coast, she actually did a couple of years on one of the destroyers. Yeah. Um, so yeah, they, they moved around quite a bit and they got to see a lot. Cool. Where were you born? Uh, Quebec City. And then lived. La Belle Provence. Yeah. Uh, first six years there, two years Halifax, uh, nine years in Ottawa, two years in Victoria. Uh, lived in Ottawa one more year. Uh, studied in college computer-assisted sound design in Montreal. What is computer-assisted sound design? It's like what we're doing right here. So you've got a soundboard there, and uh, it's you'd capture sound for stuff like podcasts, uh, but predominantly working in studio. Or I've been doing all this without a degree. Uh, yeah. Fuck, I'm brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so uh, you were a gunner for three years, you said, mm-hmm. and then you jumped to uh, special operations? Yeah, that's right. So it's a really interesting story because CSOR started in 06. Right. Um, and so we had gone down to Quantico, Virginia as a part of the NEO task force. So it's like the non-combatant evacuation. Um, I forget what the, uh, the O stands for, maybe organization. Okay. Uh, but essentially, I think it was General Caron at the time who said, hey, we're going to call, we're going to have this team augment JTF2, and we're going to take the NEO task force, and we're going to make them the special operations regiment. And so one day, uh, my battery commander just said, hey, uh, Dave, we're going to send you into this uh, special forces unit. We need to supply 12 guys. And I was like, what do they do? <laughs> and he couldn't answer me. So uh, I said, sir, thank you, but no thanks. And at the time, I was really like uh, uh, looking to get onto a Pathfinder course. Right. Right. With uh, the, uh, the Foo Party. And so like that was my focus in life. So you had no realization of what you were turning down? Yeah, none. And so I literally like, you know, did uh, drill to my left to exit the room. And this other battery commander stands right in front of me. And he says to his counterpart, he says, uh, I can't send my guy in. He's got a DUI pending 
And so my battery <laughs> commander looked at me and he's like, Gunner, whether you like it or not, you're going to this place. <laughs> and then next thing you know, they needed UAV guys. So I was in Tel Aviv for a couple of weeks using yeah. a, a UAV for the first time, which is kind of like this double-edged sword because it served So you, well you weren't and, special forces at this time yet? You were just taking specialty courses? Yeah, they were uh, grooming me already for that kind of stuff, right? And it's just fast and furious the way the first couple serials went through. Yeah. Um, so you learn that firsthand. And then in April of, uh, 06, um, that's when I think we started, um, kind of like selection within the course itself. And so it was a pretty crazy year. Selection for? CSOR. Canadian Special Operations Regiment. Yeah, that's right. So they, uh, what did they do for selecting within the, uh, the dro- you were on a drone course? Yeah, I was on a drone course, but that was just something that they needed. Um, so I still had to do the operator side of things. Uh, so there was a l- more psychological testing than anything else. The okay. rest of it was just the basic PT test. Like, would you like a job flower arranging? What kind of pornography do you read? That kind of psych testing? Yeah, if I liked, uh, made decisions based on like what the ghosts and spirits were telling me, yeah. Right. Do you hear voices nobody else hears? Yeah, that, that one's a no, by the way. got to <laughs> say no. <laughs> yeah, well, being uh, medical myself, I knew which ones to answer no to, Yeah. Uh, despite what the voices were arguing <laughs> against. All right, so uh, what, 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 did, what were you training to do with the drones? What, uh, what were the drones? It was a, technically a small UAV, and uh, so Israel developed like this ergonomic uh, control tablet, which is like a laptop with like a, a gross Xbox controller. And a small UAV launched by a bungee um, had a pretty good airtime, like an hour, an hour plus. There's a lot of things you could do with it. However, there was a lot of bugs uh, within the software. And fortunately, the hardware was really good, uh, except for landing. Um, they would do a belly landing on a like a, a blown up uh, balloon, if you will, yeah. like underneath it. Controlled and, crash. Yeah, it's controlled crash. And eventually your payload, so the sensor would be damaged. Um, so like... When it did its job, it was phenomenal. But was, it, was it weaponized at all or just strictly observation? Strictly observation. Uh, even got to the point where it had like an infrared pointer on it, which was great. Yeah. But uh, at the time, Israel went through some uh, border conflicts uh, with Hezbollah um, and other agencies there or, or parties. And so then their focus was on that, right? So contractually with Canada, I think the, the system went to court uh, just because they couldn't figure out the bugs of, of software that rendered it unreliable. All right, so um, did you have all your specialty courses before taking selection then? So you were a SOTAC or was that, did that come later? Yeah, SOTAC, SOJTAC was uh, later. Um, so in 06, uh, finished being an operator and then you're in one DA at the time, so one direct action company. Uh, and then you're just one of the numbers in the stack. So in 2007, saw my first deployment to Afghanistan and pretty much like gunner driver, uh, type position there. Um, and then after 07, um, I really wanted to become a sniper and, tell us, uh, before the sniper, tell us about your first, uh, contact in, uh, Afghanistan. Yeah, I think it was the second or third day that I was there. I was just going for a jog. So you got like the nine mil on you and you sign out, you go for your jog around the back 40 and then, like, uh, at, at some point... This was at Graceland, right? Yeah, at Graceland, yeah. so just immediately northwest of Kandahar City. Um, and then that's when, like, an RPG just, like, went over my head. some Somewhere, like, could have been forward of me by a couple hundred meters yeah. or who knows. So that was kind of, like, my first taste a little bit. It was kind of strange just seeing people, like, just on the other side of the gate like that. 
Um, but uh, yeah, they're more comfortable and accustomed to how things are going. And it was really a quiet tour because uh, some of the times that we were there, um, for me, like I didn't go out until maybe the last, in the, the fifth month of my tour. Um, like there was really, it was a really easy tour. Uh, there's nothing to complain about there. Um, Canadians had decided that we need to stop giving detainees to uh, the Americans because right. of what was happening in the news. Yeah. So there was a month, a month and a half where we were stood down. Like we couldn't go on hits because you'd either have to kill the guy so you don't bring him back as right. a detainee, but yeah. obviously you, you never know how that's going to go down. And then um, eventually my section was uh, became op-red at the end of the tour. And hours after we became op-red, the Americans were coming back from CAF at nighttime. And they got hit by a volley of like 25 RPGs. Jesus. Yeah. Uh, so it was like a convoy of four Hummers. And then they had like some jingle trucks in tow. And so we just showed up. Within 30 minutes, we showed up there. And uh, kind of a shit show. I was never outside of really my Hummer, but uh, my objective was, and this is a good story actually, get to the west side and just be kind of cordoned on the west side of the, it looks really like a traffic incident in right. like on the west side of Kandahar City. And uh, so at the time I didn't have 50-50s. I had like a, the monocular. And oh, yeah. so like to look left, Through the night look vision right. goggles. Yeah, the night vision yeah. goggles, just like even more pronounced movements looking left and right. So like showing up there, like open the door, talk to the boss. And he's like, Dave, I need you on the west flank and point the 50 down there. And I had uh, Sandy on the 50 and Mo was my my uh, 2IC sitting next to me. Or not my 2IC, but the 2IC. And so... Rashad Mo. Yeah. <laughs> so... <laughs> So I was like, all right, I got my mission, you know, and this is my first time really ever outside the wire, like yeah. next to low vis convoy moves and stuff like that. Right. And uh, so like there was no flex as a human being at that time. Right. And so I drove over a burning Hummer with my Hummer. And like later on in the, the next day, Sandy was like, why didn't you just drive around him? <laughs> so like the, yeah. Fair uh, question. But uh, I, I totally don't remember that. Um, like, my brain just blocked it out. Sandy yeah. told me about it. Uh, and well, then, were you taking fire at this point? No, there's nothing like that. When we got onto the scene, like, everything had been, like, you know, played down. Right. The attack was over. So we just did a quick reaction force show up. Uh, one of the soft guys on the U.S. side lost an eye. Everyone else was fine. And yep. then uh, one of the things that was kind of scary is the only guy who had night vision goggles was one of the cooks they were picking up at Cath. And so that obviously didn't help their situation. Um, Sounds like something out of Black Hawk Down. Yeah. And then we had the um, LO in Cath tell us uh, afterwards that the signal to do the attack came from one of the jingle trucks. So one of these trucks... And a jingle truck, folks, is a brightly... It's a heavy hauling truck brightly painted and has chains and bells and stuff all around it to decorate it. And it jingles while it's driving. So we call it a jingle truck. Yeah. And so, uh, it's, uh, this, this truck came up to like our position on the West side. They were really far behind the convoy. Right. Yeah. But imagine being that jingle truck guy and you, like you send the signal that the convoy is moving up. So you want to separate from right. the hostile act. Yeah. Uh, so it was just kind of like interesting, um, who was it? Uh, I forget his name again. 
Um, but anyways, he, he told us, uh, yeah, the, the driver was the guy who like told the ambushed, uh, Taliban fighters about, uh, here they come. So, and then as daybreak came up, you could see they had like aiming posts yeah. on the divider on the highway. So it's like, uh, they, they had their, you know, so they knew uh, when, when you were entering the kill zone. Yeah, exactly. Like, uh, pretty, pretty cool. But, uh, after the fact, uh, learning how all that stuff unraveled yeah. it's um yeah makes you think about you know where you are and and how business is done there it's uh it kind of set me set, not set me back but just kind of like gave me a greater view on reality i think a little bit and and what uh, what was your uh, opinion uh, before you've actually met any taliban resist, resistance to after you uh made contact with taliban did you have a, an opinion one way or the other of what they were like i don't think so um, like in 2011, it was a much more mature operator at that time. Yeah. So you could almost see when, when people are up to no good or, or not, you know, yeah. it's like really catching children with a hand in the cookie jar. Yeah. Um, so that, that was always kind of interesting to me. Uh, but I think the training that we received really prepared me for, uh, thinking through things really smoothly. Um, I was always wondering, you know, what's it going to be like the first time you have to shoot or see someone that's that's dead. And um, in 09 is the first time, I think, uh, that I saw a dead dude on the X. Yeah. And um, your I, first tour was when? 07. Okay. Right. So 09 was my second. And um, I was really concerned more about how his leg became like 90 degrees than the fact that he was dead. I was just like, it just made sense to me. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't stay up at night because of that kind of stuff. And I think that's just because we do so much training. And is there stuff you stay awake that keeps you awake for now? No, uh, definitely have like insomnia. So going to sleep is, is the big one for me. Yeah. Um, so. And, and why is that? Are you replaying shit in your mind or? Yeah, definitely. And, uh, the last couple of years is really when I've been able to have like the professional depth to support me through some of the stuff. Um, and so, like, Iraq is a big one. So, like, in Iraq, 2015, dropped over 127,000 pounds of HE. Right. And after my, my first, like, kick at the cat there, I mean, we were, like, seven, eight bombs deep into it. And then after a month, then I wasn't sleeping. It was just, like, So you're dropping insane. you're dropping bombs on these people. Can you see them at all? Yeah, so a lot of the stuff that you can see are the fighting positions. Right. Right. Uh, you can see hot spots from like a mortar or a rocket being used, uh, dropped on houses where you can see machine gun fire, like the spray coming out of a window, right. like those hot spots. Um, and and sometimes it was just like, hey, Dave, there's there's the house. It needs to be dealt with. And then it's like, all right, all I've got is a 2000 pound JDAM from a B1 bomber, but like it's gone now. It's going to do the job. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's a uh, it's really something so so you, you're not as distanced from the kill as the pilots who are dropping bombs in um well it, it depends half my tour was spent like in an air-conditioned operation center yeah and the other half you know there's periods where i was on literally the front line so like you can see those guys and there's a number of like close calls uh definitely like one where we're like being bracketed uh with um barbecue propane tanks that had like really good stuff welded to them and fins 
uh, you know, given a propellant, obviously. And it was impressive, like being bracketed uh, like that. And, and then... Like, it's amazing what they come up with. Oh, yeah. Like yeah. From, from a simple piece of plastic garbage can to, a, mm-hmm. to like you say, a propane tank. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you, you have to be on your guard all the time. Yeah, I think one of the things that pissed me off the most that does keep me up is how the politics came to play in 2015. Uh, so this is a really hard one for me to get over, but like being told, and I quote, you can't die because it's an election year back home in Canada. Like that's fucking insulting. Um, thanks tips, you know, like don't, <laughs> don't die. But yesterday I could have like, you know, that was yeah. okay then, but now yeah. there's an election year. So well, I always used to send my guys out the door with don't get blown up and they never got blown up. So it seems to work. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, just you're kind of like that leadership due diligence. And, uh, but also like a lot of the control was taken away from controllers, uh, especially on the front line. Okay. So let's back it up a little bit. Yeah. Tell us what you're doing out there. Yeah. So when so I would what's be, your position? You're a you're a SOJTAC or yeah. So 2015 was a SOJTAC instructor, detachment commander, and I went out there with my detachment of just three guys. So they occupied uh, two areas on the front line, and then I would be in the operations center, seconded to an American brigadier general. Mm-hmm. Um, so for the most part, Brigadier General Odom, uh, and I think he was airborne. He was. And then, so, uh, you know, I worked with, with him quite a bit, uh, and his team, um, is really impressive. However, he was the one that had to say, okay, yeah, now you can drop the bomb. Um, that was like a lot of really interesting challenges as a Canadian, because then you got to see who else was involved in, in that process, like Washington is a phone call away. Um, He definitely wanted more control than what was usually, as far as I'm concerned, necessary or required. Over your mission, you mean? Yep. Like, for example, like, all right, if the legal O says, like, this is good, like, Dave, I want that target gone. But then, you know, he'd try to, like, play with it, manipulate it a little bit. And to the point where you could have a Reaper in with heading and asking me to release the weapon. And then he would wait. And a Reaper is what? Uh, sorry, a Reaper is a, a drone the size of an A-10. Yep. And it can carry four Hellfires or a number of, the uh, same amount of like 500-pound laser-guided bombs, pro- probably some more toys on it nowadays. And um, then you almost, you know, then the plane moves outside of the cone to be able to release because the general waited so long. On what, I, I don't know. Sometimes he was literally in, in meetings about logistics and administration for the camp in our bill. And uh, it was just kind of a, a shit show that way, you know, that um, responsibility was taken away from JTACs. Because yep. um, Afghanistan wasn't like that at all. Uh, but um, uh, to, to see this guy do that, then I'd have to like diplomatically explain to him that the aircraft was incapable of hovering in a position right. until he made a decision and it's actually moving forward and the cone, you know, the, the window of opportunity like had disappeared. So right. now he's got to turn around. That's going to take a while because it's not a jet. It's a propeller driven aircraft. Yep. And yeah. Yeah. So just breathe. Okay. I'm going to ask you a question we didn't discuss and uh, shoot. I, I don't ask this question cause I hate the fucking question myself. All right. But, but I'll ask you a variety of it. Because because of the the difference in uh, 
engaging a, a, a target with your, your personal weapon and engaging with mm-hmm. a bomb. Yeah. Um, what, what difference did you find, if anything? Uh, so for me, I've never actually shot a guy. Uh, warning shots, like bullets at the feet. Yeah. And I've turned over guys to the ANA. Okay. Like I'm pretty sure their existence after they were handed over to the Afghan National Army was like, you know, not a lot of fun whatsoever. Yeah. Unless um, they had money. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, when it comes to dropping the bomb, um, like I had no problems with it, uh, except like the sheer amount of weapons that was dropped in Iraq. Yeah. I was not ready for that. Yeah, Like after a month, it was nuts. Um, it's, it's amazing the money we'll spend on killing each other. Yeah, yeah. And uh, like we can go talk about Iraq even more later, but... Um, like Afghanistan saw me like gun run with a 10 rockets out of Kiowa and some work with an AC one thirty, Um, and I just had like a huge heart on to do my job cause I yeah. really loved it. Um, so like, I remember that first a 10 run that I was going to do, that was kind of easier because like bullets cracked overhead. Yeah. So how close they were, if it was even for me, uh, I'll never know, but it's like now this man must die. Yeah. Right. And it was like super clear, um, I know for a fact that like the digits I wrote on my notepad for line six, which is the like coordinates the A10 was giving me, um, they didn't correspond with what I said. I was just so nervous the first time, like it was a giant shit show. Yeah. Uh, but that A10 guy, you know, he just talked me through it, and then I understood what where the the enemy was on the battlefield yeah. and. It's like, yeah, west to east attack. And eventually it was two guys that were huddled up together. Um, I brought in a medevac for one of the guys. We never found the second one. Um, and that was Found my pieces f- of them? Uh, no, not even. Oh. Like the Predator, uh, another drone, uh, was supposed to be looking at something else. But as soon as a lot of these guys hear something's going to blow up, like they just put their camera where that is. So they like dropped their tasking. I gave them... But uh, you see two guys there, and, and then we just take one off the X. Yeah, so I did a medevac call for, for that guy after the gun run. Um, and that was really interesting, because when we, when we did the Chinook insertion on that mission, um, and Derek Lewis was there for, for that one as well, um, I had two F-15s and an AC-130 uh, with the Reaper. Yep. Then when we got off the Chinook, there was a troops in contact up north for some Green Berets, and so they pushed all those assets except the Pred, so the Pred's like the one-trick pony where it's got a hellfire and that's it. Yeah, takes like two seconds for their audio to get back to you because at the time they were working out of like Las Vegas, right? right? And so you can hear them before they talk to you. The radio crackles to life a certain way. Yeah. And then I was like, oh, I don't hear anything, but now the Pred's going to talk to me. And they're like, hey, uh, just so you know, there's like something happening up north. So we're the only guys in the stack. And I was like, oh, it's so such a... You know, I just loved having go big or go home, like right. everything overhead. Yeah. But when we got to the release point, about a couple hundred meters, a few hundred meters from the objective, we took a knee and then Hog 6-3 checked in. And so... like Hog 6-3 being... Hog 6-3 is the A-10 call sign. So it's 6-3 and 6-4 overhead. Yeah. Uh, so I just took a couple minutes, routing and safety of flight, put them overhead, quick talk on, this is what we're doing in the next five minutes. Uh, and then uh, it was it was pretty good. So uh, snipers on on the objective, uh, like a very short firefight. 
that's where I saw the guy with like the, the 90 degree bend in his leg. Um, and then my guys were squirting, uh, to, to the East Northeast squirting meaning running. Yeah. Running away. And so the snipers were going at it. And then at one point the pilot just says, I can take him now, (laughs) you know? So when I had that, the, the confidence of what that meant in there, uh, and then he's also pointing it with his infrared pointer so mm-hmm. we can all see where they're at. Yeah. And the snipers were just shooting away, but like it wasn't happening. Uh, they did get a, a hit or two on the guy cause he was being slowed down. The A-10s are giving me the play by play. And then the ground force commander like was getting kind of maybe short. So he goes, all right, Dave, like, what do we got here? And I was, and I remember this, I'll never forget. It. I was like, fuck yeah, 30 millimeter, not danger close. The effects are going to go from the west to the east away from the ground force. And uh, then I remember trying to pull information from the blocking positions. I was definitely excited, overly excited. No one was talking to me on the radio. So I felt like I lost control a little, little bit. Yeah. And uh, unfortunately, when the A-10 came down the chute and I cleared them hot, he didn't hear that, but his number two did. And so it was a short burst, but it was still 250 pounds worth the 30 millimeter, you know, con- like 80% of it concentrated, concentrated within a 40 foot uh, circle. Yeah. I, but, I, I've been in the uh, ops room when the, uh, the guns have gone, gone off to blow up a target yeah. and you're, you're watching to tear up the ground. Everything around it is just being destroyed. And I'm watching this one guy who was a squirter and, uh, he he hid behind a rock about yeah. the size of your head. I'm not saying you have a big head, but yeah, he, I get it. It was a it yeah. was a sizable rock, and uh, he uh, the the he's getting tore up all around him, and he somehow lived. Not a scratch on him. Like his buddy got killed, but yeah. he he was not scratched. He we, he shit his man's jammies, I'm sure. But uh, another A10 uh, strike of mine in in Iraq. Um, we dropped four 500 pound bombs of different varieties on two guys. The first bomb took care of one guy, and then after that, it was like cue the Benny Hill theme song, right? And this guy was the fastest human being alive. Um, we tried a proximity fuse setting, so the shrapnel sprang down on him. We did a delay fuse setting where we're hoping the the shale and like rock of the mountainside is going to spray on them uh like a contact like right on the guy and i was like this isn't and then we had to stop just because of like the rules of engagement and the law of armed conflict obviously uh and then but how, how much cost was expended on that one guy um, like for weapons wise is probably around the hundred thousand dollar mark. But I mean, there's also fuel that you take yeah. into consideration there. Yeah, the pilots paid. Yeah. But yeah. I mean, if you want to break it down to all the maintainer <laughs> hours and stuff like that, you know, now if we could just focus on taking that money and doing good with it. Well, yeah. I mean, I think you and I agree. There are people that need to be killed or should be killed. hundred percent. Um, no, no amount of jail time or rehab is ever going to fix them. Yeah. What was it? The, uh, have you heard of Neil deGrasse Tyson? Yeah. So um, I love listening to this guy just because of the spin he puts on physics, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so what was it? He said the F-35 fighter program for all the countries involved in it over the course of its 30, 40 years of flight is going to be over a trillion dollars. That's one airplane. And then um, NASA... To date, I think, or like in not a year, 
I forget the details exactly, but yeah. it dwarfs in comparison. It's like 150 billion bucks, yeah. you know, for like space exploration yeah. and just moving the yardsticks forward for humanity. But like creating a space force. Yeah, but we're going to go ahead with this F-35, which is just drives me bananas, you know, <laughs> to replace the A-10, but uh, yeah, I can't I mean, influence that. No, neither can I, and I wish they'd hang on to it. But enough, we're going down a rabbit hole. That's our first rabbit hole. That's good. And we pull ourselves out of it. Um, so uh, what, what were, I guess, would it be, say, you're, you've got air, airplanes stacked on top of each other mm-hmm. waiting to go in, and you're 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 calling in calling them in, um, hopefully with enough time in between so they're not uh, shooting each other or dropping bombs on each other. Or yeah. what's, what's your biggest fear about that? Um, I don't really have a fear about it. It's three D spatial abilities, and it's really a parking lot in the sky. Okay, so you can be artistic about it because it really is, um, and then. You just have to understand where what you've done with your stack, who's got gas remaining, roughly what weapons are on board. Uh, usually some aircraft will just have different weapons than others. Um, and, and then you have to be acutely aware as to the changing dynamics on the battlefield. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the training that we've given ourselves in special operations as JTACs is, is really, I haven't seen anyone train that well mm-hmm. to it. Um, if I wouldn't be missing anything, I'd want to work in Nellis on like a weapons instructor course, yeah. which is secret, no foreign. So right. I can't get out there. It's like six months of every day, wake up at five, brief, de- brief, execute, debrief, do it again, twice a day type stuff. Um, so that's where I would have liked to really kind of like become more rounded. But as far as the mission goes, um, you know, you're, you're just once, once you've done it so many times, it's no longer sequential, what I tell people. It's not park them in the sky. What do you have? This is what I'm dealing with. Here's the nine line, the coordinates to the target, and, and then the execution piece, and then maybe the reattack yeah. or back to routing and safety of flight, which is parking them in the sky. It becomes modular after a while. And so it's one of the things we couldn't practice to because it's so expensive to conduct close air support training. And, and uh, what's the nine line there? The nine line is just like a contract between you and the pilot. Okay. And it's designed in such a way that one of you two have to catch the mistake. And if you don't, then a blue on blue happens okay. almost every time. Yeah. Um, and so essentially, you know, uh, IP, which is the initial point, heading and distance uh, the aircraft has to take to come on in. This stuff will be given just so that the weapon, when it flies through the stack other people's blocks and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And then when it hits the target, uh, you may be doing it on purpose so that if the bomb lands short, it's not on friendly forces or uh, like say a mosque. Yeah. And then once the bomb explodes, you want the spray to go away from you or school and stuff yeah. like that. Yeah. So then you're talking about like final attack headings in there uh, and a bunch of stuff. There's, there's a lot of tools uh, the flexibility afforded to the JTAC is is vast. Um, you feel that kind of pressure? At the beginning, I did. Yeah. So today, one of the challenges I deal with is, like, control. When I lose control, I lose my fucking mind. And so, like, I've triaged an accident a couple time, a couple of years ago, mm-hmm. one summer, just showing up on my Harley. Like, awesome. Totally in the element. This yeah. is, like, not a JTAC thing, but, like, probably operators in general, right? right? Yeah. Or a lot of military 
You've done yeah. you've done advanced medical training. Yeah, yeah, to some degree. Well, I'll keep them alive for an hour, and yeah. uh, so from there, um, you know, being a controller and being used to just like having it my way or no way. Uh, but now, like as a civilian, I have to just understand the fact that it's no longer like that. So if my daughter's got like a glass of milk and she spills a little bit in the kitchen, it's like the fucking end of the world, <laughs> you know. <laughs> But I mean, if there's a car crash, no problem. Let's, yeah. let's deal with it. Yeah. So um, I have to pivot how my brain thinks about things, um, you know, to kind of quote business mentality there. Yeah. Yeah. But um, yeah, just kind of refocus and, and readjust. But definitely being a controller for that long and also an instructor and having significant responsibility is something that I miss, but I have to get used to it. And yeah. Speaking about mess, what's your biggest oops factor? Um, my oops factor. Yeah, or biggest oops. Uh, what 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 did you do that you go? Oh, I could have like, done that better. Or the biggest fuck. Not up? saying uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, hmm. Controlling wise overseas as a JTAC, uh, I'm not. I don't have anything really on my mind. Probably like the first control I did. Where like I didn't really have to talk to the A10. Mm-hmm. I just said numbers that I didn't even write down, or he has like he was just a shit show, yeah. right? But like I just used it as my best lesson learned. Mm-hmm. Um, like again, it was modular. Like it wasn't sequential. Like we execute it in training. Um, so I wouldn't necessarily say an oops, but a huge lesson learned for me. Okay, what, what's what's your what do you hold as your biggest success? My biggest success. Yeah. I think in just theater. don't say your daughter or something. No, no, no. Uh, biggest success in theater, I, I think, is is just doing as much as I did overall. We're at thirty five minutes there, so. Um, but like, oops, wise, like thinking back on it today and seeing like how marriage uh, affected by the service and stuff like that. And, and not by the service would my biggest oops is definitely not paying enough attention to the friendships and relationships that I had in special operations. Yeah. Because in the last few years when I did ask for help, then help came from the strangest of places. Uh, right. Super welcome. Like what? Uh, just like people who really, I didn't, I didn't know if, uh, uh, they would even care to kind of like assist and, and stuff like that. Right. And equally it was a good opportunity because I saw some people in the social circle that kind of you, you would assume they're there for you and they just couldn't deal with it. Um, so like if there's an oops, it's, I wish I spent more time just investing in those relationships while I was in the regiment. Okay. That sounds like a good place to uh, start uh, part two. So we'll take a quick break here and uh, be right back. <laughs> 